we started out with a segment on the Spotted Owl Wars, the Timber Wars, and we segued from that into a beautifully restored watershed and an environmental activist kayaking through it, talking about the collaboration with the timber industry and the conservation and recreation community in order to, you know, um, improve what had been that, you know, somewhat disturbed watershed. So these are the kinds of things that I see more and more happening uh, in, in these collaborative efforts that truly help people understand each other's viewpoints and ways of working together. This is the Mass Timber Group Show. I'm Nick. And I'm Brady. And we talk about the green building revolution. Our guest today brings an extensive knowledge base and set of experience in the great outdoors of our country and beyond. He's been involved with way too many organizations to name, but notably, he and his wife, Paula, led the Continental Divide Trail Alliance in the completion of the National Scenic Trail all the way from Canada down to Mexico. Uh, He's the president of Choose Outdoors, which is an organization whose mission is connecting everyone to the many benefits of America's forests. Choose Outdoors also partners with the USDA Forest Service uh, to create a year-round program that celebrates the U.S. Capitol Christmas tree and its journey to Washington. And last, but certainly not least, he's the executive producer of America's Forest with Chuck Lavelle. So with that, I'd like to welcome Mr. Bruce Ward to today's show. Bruce, thank you for being here. We appreciate your time and look forward to uh, hearing a little bit more about what you have to say on uh, how to build sustainably. Uh, so with that, Nick, why don't you uh, ask our guests the first question? Sure thing. Well, we'd like to start off by saying a little bit about who are you. Uh, maybe give us a little bit of, of your background story, like where were you born and raised? Um, what what did your career path look like? You know, what were you? What made you be fascinated in forests? Well, Nick and Brady, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me to be on your uh, podcast. I really appreciate that. So I grew up just outside of Boston, Massachusetts, and um, didn't really have a lot of big forests around us, but we did have some little pocket parks and I spent a lot of time just, you know, experiencing, let's just say some escape from uh, the, the, the environment that I was normally uh, lived in. I had an opportunity to move to Colorado, uh, I guess it was about 40 years ago, and it was there that I truly came to understand and embrace our national forest, you know, that was really the initial focus. And while building the Continental Divide Trail, we had an opportunity to meet with all kinds of people, uh, mining, logging, uh, oil and gas, because they all were stakeholders in the land that the trail would go to. And for us, it was important to work with those folks. And uh, unfortunately, many of them had not had great experiences in working with some environmental and conservation groups. So they were, they've truly embraced our view of working collaboratively to create this national treasure. So that put me and uh, on this path of working with the U.S. Forest Service. And my work is really focused in many ways on helping people to understand the importance of our national forests the work of the U.S. Forest Service, and really how our national forests, our forests affect all of us every day in many ways that most people don't even recognize. So it's been a a labor of love and uh, a passion that I've had for a long time. 
And I'm thrilled to, you know, now have this opportunity to bring the U.S. Capitol Christmas tree to Washington, D.C. It's a very high profile project. We get tens of thousands of people come out to see the tree. We've been on national news with it. We've been on international news with it. And we always try to integrate a message around educating people about our forests and about the forest service and about the many uses of wood, especially in the urban areas where so many, uh, so many people are disconnected from our natural resources and their, in their many purposes. And then, you know, I guess it was, uh, Eight years ago, I met with Chuck LaBelle, who was the keyboardist for the Rolling Stones, the Allman Brothers, Eric Clapton. There's a great documentary out about him right now um, called Chuck LaBelle, the Free Man. And we've traveled around the country um, exploring the many challenges and opportunities on our forest. So everything from one of the first cross-laminated timber plants in the United States to where Fender Guitarist gets its wood, to the importance of the tribal involvement with our forests and this tribal experiential knowledge that is different from how many people pursue, you know, forestry, but it's based on hundreds of years of sustainable forestry. So it's been a great run and uh, we have our 12th and 13th episodes that are, we'll be filming in Maine in uh, August. So a little bit about my background and where we're at now. Well, you lead a very fascinating and exciting life. I, you have to, I, I had to look it up, but tell the viewers, how long is the Continental Divide Trail? Like, where does it start and where does it end? And how long did it take maybe for the inception or the beginning until, I guess, the end? I don't, I don't even know what the, the end looked like. Was there a red bow that you cut <laughs> and, you know, people started running on the trail or? Well, it's a good question. So in the 1970s, um, there was a recognition that the Appalachian Trail had a great model for a public-private uh, national scenic trail. And through, so through the National Scenic Trails Act, they decided that the Pacific Crest Trail and the Continental Divide Trail should be looked at from a government standpoint for national designation. And when uh, Paul and I started in 1995, working on the uh, Continental Divide Trail in most of the, most of the lands that it traveled through, it was like a lot of things. There was a study done. It was a great big volume about the possibilities. And it sat on a lot of desks, uh, forest service desks primarily, but also the BLM and the park service. And like a lot of things, unless you have a real public emphasis on making something happen, there's so many other priorities that these agencies are faced with. So we spent a year looking into the possibility of creating a nonprofit and we started the Continental Divide Trail Alliance. So over the 15 years, my wife was a landscape architect and was very involved with the placement of the trail and, and virtually every facet of what we were doing. And the, the, the entire trail was not really clearly identified. We actually hold, held a, an event we called Uniting Along the Divide, where we brought together uh, individual volunteers, government agencies, and corporate supporters, and we divided the trail up into 31 sections and gave everybody, gave everyone a 100-mile section and said, go tell us what you think. Wow. And so we got a lot of input at that point as to what, where the trail should go, but we also got a lot of buy-in on the possibilities and the importance of it. 
So once that was done, we had sort of a document that we could bring to Washington and say, this is what we need to do to complete the trail. This is how much money it's going to cost. This is how many miles. This is the private sector that we'll get to leverage it with volunteers and, and corporate support. And so that that got us our first, uh, they called it an earmark at the time. Now they call it targeted funding. I think it's just a nuance, but uh, the effort was to, for the Forest Service to now say, you've got $750,000. And this came as a direct result of Senator Ben Nighthorse Campbell, who was an early champion of ours, um, making sure that that made it through the appropriations process. He was on the appropriation. So now we had a significant, let's just say, political message that this no longer is, uh, you know, just a study sitting on a desk. This is something that we want to make happen. And this is the organization that we believe can make it happen. So with that kind of funding, we then brought in, you know, the outdoor industry became uh, a very prominent supporters. So outside magazine, backpacker magazine, uh, Jansport, Red Wing Shoes, Vask, a lot of them saw the value of this and they began to provide political support and, you know, uh, a lot of the marketing support that helped to really bring this uh, to the public attention and awareness. And you might imagine in 3,100 miles, obviously, if it's going through a forest in some places, they had already built, they called it the Continental Divide Trail, but there was no connection to anything else. Mm-hmm. Right? So it's like, I was at a national scene. So now we had to look at the building blocks of putting it together. We had to look at things like uh, private land. We had to look at things like uh, oil and gas and mining. And we worked with a company in Southern Wyoming, Anadarko, and they had uh, it's a checkerboard land ownership there. And they were able to basically work with us to set out that route. And because of the type of terrain, it wasn't like you actually had to build a trail. You were just putting signposts along the way to keep people on track. But it also required um, some reassurance from them that we wouldn't say, for example, uh, now we want this trail, but we don't want anything built within eyesight of it because that might be 50 miles on either side. So we just said, look, all we want is a non-motorized trail that will help people primarily on horses and and uh, mountain bikes and, and hiking so that they don't have to walk on the highway. And the backcountry horsemen came and they helped us put in all of the uh, signage. So that's one example. We also had to go to the state legislature and get them uh, a recreational liability uh, waiver so that if somebody could hurt while they were on the trail, they would sue in a dark boat, for example. So we had to work through some, some of those political and legal aspects. And then in other areas, it was just a question of, um, you know, in southern New Mexico, for example, talking to ranchers who weren't too excited about it initially, but, you know, the more we talked to them about the, the, the greater good that we would be doing as a way of constructing this, we were able to get some of them to come on. And then we had Rocky Mountain National Park. And at first they were like, look, we don't need no stinking trails. We got enough trails. <laughs> so we worked out a way to essentially overlay an existing trail and build that into the system. So it took a lot of different strategies. It took a lot of time, it took a lot of volunteers. We would bring thousands of volunteers out to work on that trail uh, from all over the country and educate them about the importance of their public lands and give them a sense of ownership and give them an opportunity to interact with uh, the Forest Service and the Park Service and the BLM and 
and some of the private stakeholders as well. So, you, you know, it, it's, it's not complete, complete. I mean, when you complete at the Appalachian Trail, it's been around 100 years, isn't complete because they're always moving it, you know, for some reason or other. But there's a lot of challenges now. Everything's, um, you know, um, expanding the, the, the grid for, you know, promoting electricity through renewables to, um, you know, Native American issues that we've run into in certain places. So it's a, it's a work in progress, but you can pretty much walk from Canada to Mexico in six months. You might have to do a little bit. Oh, of, is that it? Yeah. It's about, <laughs> it's about six months. Uh, so, so if you, if you get nothing to do for six months, yeah, that could be your next goal. I'll, I'll put that, that on the I'm calendar. Thinking, I'm thinking that that kind of, uh, is a quick overview of where that trail is at, how we got there. Yeah. Thank you. I, I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a pretty incredible accomplishment. And, and in that story, you had talked a lot about bringing different stakeholders together. You had mentioned private landowners, various different government entities, forest service, BLM, uh, and then also like private partnerships. You mentioned several different companies that participated in it. Um, in some of your other work, you've talked a lot uh, about uh, marrying recreation and industry in the forests. Can you tell us a little bit about that uh, and that that concept of kind of social license that you talk about? Yeah, a, a couple of aspects of that. So I think one of the best ways to illustrate it is in one of our episodes of America's Forest with Chuck LaBelle, we went to uh, Bend, Oregon. And so there was an area around the perimeter of Bend that the Forest Service wanted to do a lot of thinning to prevent a catastrophic wildfire from impacting the city. So one of the things they thought was brilliant was they went to the mountain biking club and they said, look, we got to clear these trees. Why don't you guys come out there with us and help us create some cool mountain biking trails while we're cutting these trees down? So they built in a level of understanding with a constituent group that potentially could have been, you know, adverse to their efforts. And so in our episode, we've got Chuck mountain biking. I think he's on his way to a brewery in Bend uh, with a local recreation uh, activist. And in the background, we have the logging trucks going by. And so we tell the story of them working collaboratively as a means of, you know, uh, addressing the social license factor. And another example I would give you in, in Oregon, we started out with a segment on the spotted owl wars, the timber wars. And we segued from that into a beautifully restored watershed and an environmental activist kayaking through it, talking about the collaboration with the timber industry and the conservation and recreation community in order to, you know, um, improve what had been that, you know, somewhat disturbed watershed. So these are the kinds of things that I see more and more happening uh, in, in these collaborative efforts that truly help people understand each other's viewpoints and ways of working together. What did you find? So you're, the mission of Choose Outdoors is to connect everyone to the many benefits of America's forests. And, you know, there's a lot of people in the world with a lot of different ideas on, um, you know, some people just flat out are against maybe, uh, you know, healthy forest management, logging, like this, that. What were some of the biggest hurdles or maybe takeaways where you were just, you can see eye to eye and more or less educate people on the, the positivities of 
you know, forest management, uh, maybe with what with forest fires coupled in there in general. But what did you kind of keep running up against out there in the world? Well, I, you know, you've raised a, an interesting point because I think I refer to it somewhat ironically as the silver bullet has been these catastrophic wildfires and the massive insect infestations because it's in the news every day. You know, somewhere there's a there's a catastrophic wildfire. Somewhere they're closing campgrounds because of hazard trees, and um, and so people realize something is going on on our forests, and they want to know why, and they want to know who's doing something about this, and how did we let it get to this point? So I refer to the unintended consequences of well-intentioned environmental policies. And I think many people would agree with that, that a lot of what was done because we thought it was the right thing to do, including putting out the Forest Service, putting out every fire as quickly as they possibly can, because it had been major loss of life and loss of communities because of some of these catastrophic wildfires. And now we obviously understand, and the Native Americans understood, that fire is part of the natural ecology. It's what helped to clear a lot of the, you know, the trees that were detrimental for wildlife habitat or for just, you know, healthy growth. And we have in Colorado, we have great photos of a hundred years ago, you know, pioneers taking their wagons through forests and those forests now are filled with what we call dog hair. It's just the trees are so close together. You can barely walk through them. Never mind drive a, 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 a uh, you know, a, drive anything through there, mountain biking. So, so these are the things that I think are helping people to recognize that something needs to be done and that through this collaborative effort of having environmental, we work closely with the Nature Conservancy on a lot of our uh, programs. And they do a real good job of helping people to understand because they go out and they harvest a lot of trees themselves, but they're doing it for wildlife habitat. They're doing it because it's the right thing for the natural environment because things are not the way they were a hundred years ago before it was settled. So having that kind of reinforcement, you know, and I don't want to in any way, shape or form uh, minimize the impact that Chuck LaBelle has. You know, Chuck is a keyboardist for the Rolling Stones. He's, you know, worked with Eric Clapton. He's, uh, traveled the world, but he is a award-winning conservationist tree farmer. And so he's passionate about this issue when he's gone to Congress to speak on behalf of, uh, policies and funding to be supportive of sustainable forestry. And he's written op-eds for the Wall Street Journal. I mean, this guy has some significant clout when it comes to weighing in on these because he really understands that balance between conservation and utilization of wood done sustainably is one of the best things we could be doing for the planet. And how did you guys get connected? So, uh, when I first started with the Capital Christmas tree, that was kind of a big deal and it kind of got out there in the, mm-hmm. in the world. And um, Chuck found me and just said, Bruce, if there's anything I can do to help, just let me know because I, I think what you're doing is great. 
And so I said, well, Chuck, you can come out to Colorado and you could do a couple of fundraisers for me and uh, meet some people and get them excited about it. And that's what he did do. So we went to Aspen. We had the chief of the forest service there. We had the CEO of Aspen there. We had, but it was Chuck that brought them together and, you know, and then he did the similar sort of thing in Denver and we just got hit it off. And I said, yeah, you'd make a great host for a TV series. He kind of laughed and said, yeah, we'll make it happen. You know, and I'm in, and I was able to find a production company, a great uh, producer, uh, executive producer and director Kate Rice and her company, 42 Degrees North. They had a lot of 30 years of experience in working with PBS and the Discovery Channel and a number of other, you know, um, educational programs. And she immediately got what we were trying to do. She owned a woodland in Massachusetts. She had produced a series about Trailside, which was an outdoor recreation oriented series about, you know, learning about things you can do in the outdoors. And I knew her from those things. And, and so Kate and I and Chuck put together a treatment, they call it. And I took it to Washington and the then uh, deputy director of state private, Steve Marshall, who's very prominent in the cross laminate timber world to this day, mm-hmm. immediately saw the value in what we were doing and made a significant investment in the series. And that kind of kicked us off. Um, and uh, we got Chuck to do a keynote address to the first mass timber conference. And, uh, and then we showed a premiere of our Oregon episode. Uh, of uh, the series and that kind of brought it all together. I mean, we had a lot of people who have come to embrace what we're doing and to help fund it and support it in various ways. And we've just become, you know, good friends. He and myself and his wife, Rose Lane, and my wife, Paula, often are at, you know, filming together. And we've spent a week at his place in, on Charlene down there with them. So we've become good friends. And he's just, you know, one of the most genuine, authentic individuals you'll ever meet. If you ever see his documentary about his life, uh, Chuck Lavelle Tree Man, it's an award-winning film. It's pretty much available everywhere now. Um, you really get some insights into his passion for his family, for the forest, and for, you know, music. So he's he's got a lot of unique aspects of who he is that makes him the perfect spokesperson for the series. Yeah, that's incredible. Hey, real quick. Have you heard about the wildfires going on right now in Canada, up in Alberta? Yeah, I have been. And I haven't been tracking with them, honestly, because it's, I, like I said, it feels like every day I'm reading about another wildfire. And, yeah, and, I I but, just but, looked it up. I Well, I heard about it today. I, you guys know that I sell yeah. dimensional softwood lumber, and I was talking to Wes Frazier. So if People don't know who Wes Frazier is. They're the number one producer of uh, lumber in the entire world. And their Etson mill is currently closed down at 100% because they're, um, it's at the, it's at their back door. And then their, um, high prairie mill is running a skeleton crew right now. But I just looked it up. T- over 25,000 people were evacuated in Alberta. There's 103 wildfires burning across the Western province right now. It's, it, it's a pretty big deal. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's just a, a huge, um, it's, it's just devastating. And so, you know, when they're out of control and, and it's, it's tough to have that conversation some, sometimes about healthy forest management. Well, we were evacuated three times from our, we had a home in the wildland urban interface 
here in Colorado and we're evacuated because of catastrophic wildfires. So it's certainly something that we're very familiar with. It's an emotional issue for us. And, you know, again, it comes down to having the social license for the agencies to go in and do that thinning. And, you know, mm-hmm. from some people's perspective, it's destroying their scenic view or their favorite mountain biking trail or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then you see something like what you're seeing happen, but it's happening every day, everywhere around the world, actually. So it's a huge problem. And, and I think it's just important that we all do what we can to reinforce the importance of addressing it in the ways that, you know, only these agencies know how to, to do. Yeah. And one of the, one of the reasons that, you know, we wanted to have these types of conversations with individuals like yourselves is to kind of show, uh, what can be done with our, with our forests. Um, we're, we're a little biased. We like to, to talk about mass timber a lot. Um, but there, uh, we actually had a brief conversation with Steve Marshall, the gentleman you mentioned before, and he'll be coming on later. Um, but the forest service and private timberland company owners, both are on the same page that, you know, nobody wants a forest fire raging out of control, you know, burning everything to the ground. But at the same time, like you mentioned before, you can't let, you can't have a, a zero tolerance policy, uh, without some sort of alternative intervention. Um, and with those thick forests, uh, a lot of people say, well, if you're going to cut down a tree, what are you going to do with it? And so there's kind of a whole burgeoning industry or industries, I should say, uh, kind of focused on that effort. You know, everything from um, bioproducts coming out used in building insulation, for mass timber used in building construction, um, for fuel sources, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, in your series with Chuck, uh, what were some of the things that you saw uh, that were kind of addressing that issue? Yeah, it's a good question. And, and, you know, since you mentioned it, we're wrapping up our first season and our next national series is going to be, uh, it's going to evolve. And specifically to your point, we're looking at uh, six one hour episodes with a theme based to them. So climate change would be an example. Tribal forestry would be one, but innovative forest products is another. Cause you're right. If we're going to utilize this wood, there obviously has to be some way of monetizing that. So cross-laminated timber was the very first thing that was brought to our attention. And for me, seeing a TED Talk by Michael Green, and Michael Green spoke pretty eloquently about the the benefits to the planet of building with wood as opposed to steel or concrete. Um, but in in all of the succeeding episodes, we've looked at innovative things that are happening. Um, we're in Maine, for example, we're working with a company called TA Timber HP, and they're creating an insulation to replace fiberglass insulation, which has been utilized in Europe for some time. And what they're doing is they're taking in an existing paper and pulp mill and retrofitting it. So a an industry that had pretty much disappeared in all of the jobs and all of the basis for the local economy went away, Timber HP is now resurrecting that mill and bringing back the jobs and bringing back an innovative use of wood in a way that uh, truly benefits everyone. You know, that that's one example. I guess another example that I might um, speak to is the, the utilization of wood in uh, beetle kill wood. So beetle kill wood, right? Millions of acres devastated. And um, there was a lot of question, well, what are you going to do with it? And you know, 
what we did is we looked out and we found out that there were companies that were taking this beetle kill wood and they were turning it into really beautiful um, guitars and drums and using it to make musical instruments. Um, we also worked here in Colorado to get people to not only accept beetle kill wood for use, but to appreciate the beauty of beetle kill wood, you know, the blue stain that goes into it. So it was everything from furniture to skis to two by fours that were being utilized in a way that people saw as being beneficial to the environment and not something that was degrading it. When we, when, when the developer we worked with in Colorado initiated, we sold them on the idea. He went out and got the beetle kill wood and they said to their salespeople, this is out at Lowry, which is a big development here. They said, you know, you have to tell a potential buyer that you're building with beetle kill wood. And some of the salespeople were not too excited about that. I mean, if you're not in the know, it's like beetle kill wood is a good thing. And so what was fortunate was the first, one of the first buyers was a woman who was really big in sustainability. And she got that bigger message of the utilization of that wood and why it was a good thing. And she became a great spokesperson, an unpaid spokesperson, because she saw it from that perspective. So, uh, you know, as we kind of uh, look at our series, that those are the kinds we will be looking at. There's a company, Sappy is a company that makes clothing using, you know, the, the wood fiber. There are companies out there making flak jackets. Uh, you know, there's, it seems like no end of innovation that's going on relative to how to utilize wood. And, you know, we think that's a good thing. That's a great thing for industry. It's a good thing made in America. And it's a good thing for our forests that are in desperate need of, you know, further management. It might help to tell people that, you know, if you've never heard what, you know, beetle kill is, I mean, it's like, it's not slang. It's literally a beetle that has been brought over Forgive me. Do you know where it came from? Well, as I understand it, beetle kill, I believe, was indigenous here, and it's always been a part. But, but what's unique is the scale of what's happened. And the scale of what's happened is in part, many people would say it's because of climate change, because the beetles would die in the severe cold winters. Mm. Several days of severe cold would kill them. But then in addition to that, the trees, a healthy tree can defend itself against beetle kill by the sap that the sap will actually help to, um, you know, remove the, the beetles, but because it's been so dry and because there's many of these trees, you know, trees have a lifespan like people and the, the trees, the Mount, Mount pine beetle going for many of them are, you know, at their age of when they die, the, the mortality is because we had you know, when the, when the West was settled, we pretty much cut everything, right? And so you have this mono, monoculture of trees coming back that are all the same age and they're all sort of dying at the same time because of, you know, the, the necessity of building this country. So, so it's really been a, a question of the warming of the climate and uh, the lack of, and the age of the trees that have not given them the ability to defend themselves uh, against the beetle. I'm reading right here the sustainablelumbercompany.com. There, this is a big round number, but it says that this tiny little beetle has killed over 100 million acres of trees across the U.S. and Canada. 
Yeah, it's Canada, you know, from Canada to the Mexican border and from the, you know, Rocky Mountains to the West Coast, it's, it's had an impact and, you know, it's what's going to replace them. And what do we do when we, you know, lost the habitat for animals and when we've lost the, you know, shade for towns that are, you know, basically having removed trees because of the trees. And so a lot of implications. Mm-hmm. Bruce, you shared a lot of, uh, a lot of your experience, um, and some of the journeys that you've gone on. Is there anything that you can point to in your life or your career that you would consider kind of like a defining moment that helped contribute to who you are or your belief systems? Yeah. Um, so I was an adventure tour guide for seven years and we basically camped. I lived in tents for like pretty much for seven years in the United States and Canada and Mexico and a lot of Europe and Africa and South America. And so what I was able to see up close was the value, the incredible value of our public lands and our forests, especially when you go to countries that are either overdeveloped and have very little of that, um, you know, left, or you see it in places where it's, you know, um, so restricted because it's all private and and it doesn't, we didn't, we didn't have the same kind of you know, emphasis in this country with people like Gifford Pinchot and John Muir and the, the, the founders of our conservation movement, there was a real effort not only to conserve um, much of our natural lands, but to make it available to the public so that we could experience it, enjoy it, and appreciate it, and vote for people who were similarly interested in preserving those lands for a variety of reasons, uh, environmental, recreational, conservationist. And so I think that that's probably was the biggest epiphany. And then having people from other countries that I was taking around the United States and Canada, um, who were just so, uh, blown away by how much of this we had and how beautiful it was and how accessible it was. Uh, I would say that that was probably the defining moment in my enthusiasm or, you know, wanted to be a part of a, a movement that helps to reinforce those values. This is going to be a tough question to ask, but what, I mean, I'm talking jaw on the ground, beautiful. What would be, what would you, what's your favorite part of the country? Maybe like a, a little city, a trail, what really stands out to you if you had to say one? Um, that's a tough question, but I will say um, Yosemite National Park. I, and I worked there okay. for two seasons, um, just just not in a ranger, but uh, I'm working to the concessionaire there. And um, I just fell in love with it, you know, hiked all over and really experienced the beauty of it. But I do think like so many places, you know, it's, it's that concern over loving it to death, right? There are so many people that want to go there. They're talking about, you know, some kind of, you get to go once in your lifetime to places like the Grand Canyon or Yosemite because they they just can't manage the numbers. They just don't have right. the funding or the people or the space to do it. So, um, but yeah, I mean that that that's off the top of my head from a, the grand standpoint. But also, you know, I'm working on the Continental Divide Trail. We were above Timberline from you know border to border, and we saw a lot of beautiful terrain. I think that's the other thing that people need to recognize. If if you pick up a book on like the hundred best places to visit in America, guess what? Every single one of them is going to be packed with people. 
There are so many beautiful places. In Colorado, it's the 14ers, right? Everybody right. wants to climb all the 14ers. Well, the 13ers are just as beautiful, suddenly more beautiful, but it's not a 14er. So we just have to be thoughtful about how we uh, visit and appreciate those places and look for places that, you know, I, I have several wilderness areas that I like to hike in and I hardly see anyone. They're, they're very beautiful. It's just they don't have the same cachet as our national parks do or, you know, some of the other 100 best places to camp. Folks will tell, tell you they are. Well, you've been a part of a, a lot of different, uh, fairly significant projects uh, throughout your career. Is there something you can point to that you would consider like your greatest professional accomplishment? You know, I think for Paula and I to start the Continental Divide Trail Alliance, I mean, it was, it literally was a book sitting on a, 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 a book sitting on dozens, if not hundreds of desks that it's be dusty when we get a hold of it. And the whole idea that we could in some ways emulate the Appalachian Trail, but kind of put a 21st century spin on it, uh, because we worked across all of the different recreation groups where the Appalachian Trail is pretty much hikers. They didn't want mountain bikers. They didn't really like horseback riders. They, you know, this is built by hikers for hikers. And mm -hmm. we said, you know what, in order for us to be successful, we really need to reach across those recreational interests and get everybody on board. And, and Choose Outdoors was formed in part looking for initiatives that would bring us together so that, you know, when I go to Washington to, to fight for funds when I was uh, with the American Hiking Society, you know, behind me was the mountain biker and behind that person was the backcountry horse and behind that was a motorized. And they all were bitching about the person in front of them, you know? I don't want those mountain bikes on my horseback trail. I don't want those hikers on my mountain biking trail. And I'm thinking, this is pretty stupid. Um, we're not going to get very far if that's what your congressman or senator, or I've actually heard a chief of the Forest Service say when he heard recreation, he thought constant. And I thought, this is, this is not, you know, going to get us anywhere. So yeah, finding initiatives like the Christmas tree and the TV series were, um, you know, the kinds of things that I thought would bring us together. Yeah. So, so what's next? Um, so what's next? Uh, the, the evolution of the TV series, it will pretty much consume, uh, you know, our efforts because it'll be a national series. It'll be focused on these major issues that we're all faced with across the country and that have, um, you know, true impact on every one of us every day. And, um, uh, Bruce, that was, that was amazing. Thank you for sharing everything, uh, that you did with us and to the listeners. Uh, we do have a few questions that we ask every member, uh, that comes on and, and shares our story with us. Uh, and the first is just, what's your favorite book, podcast, or show and why? So, um, there was a book that came out, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago called Last Child in the Woods. And, um, it was a, a really well done look at why we have the problems that we do in society and uh, the problems that we have with, um, you know, getting youth more involved in the outdoors and conservation efforts and whatnot. So, um, I think that was really, you know, a seminal work that really got me thinking about, you know, 
like Native Americans, we need to be thinking about several generations after us and, you know, who will carry those conservation banners and who will carry, you know, the passion for the outdoors um, if we're not out there actively bringing that in. So last child in the woods. Perfect. And it sounds like Chuck Lavelle is a big inspiration for the industry. Is there anybody else who inspires you in your industry? Um, you know, that, that's a good question. There's, um, you know, in the outdoor recreation world, um, there's someone who I've become friends with. His name is Luis Benitez. And Luis was a, a champion for this creating of outdoor recreation industry councils around the country. So it was an ability to get states to begin to focus on recreation as a very specific, important um, aspect. He went on to become like vice president of global affairs for the North Face. So oh. he took on a major industry role and he has been very uh, prominent in that world. And I would be uh, be very surprised if that guy doesn't run for office someday because he, he's got the right message and he's got the right uh, background to do. So I, you know, off the top of my head, I'm going to say, let me need this. Cool. Perfect. And then before we ask our last question, where can people find out more about you uh, or the work that you're involved with? So I'm on LinkedIn at Bruce Ward, but the, the website is www.chooseoutdoors.org. And that will also take you to the America's Forest with Chuck LaBelle and the Capitol Christmas Tree uh, websites from that. From the website. And our last question, it's kind of a fun uh, little one. It's uh, so you have found yourself a magic genie that you can only grant one wish related to your industry. What do you wish for and why? Well, I was originally going to say that everybody would watch this podcast, but I'm going <laughs> to say that I think it would be, if I had that wish, I would say that it would be that every person on the planet would plant one tree. Cool. I think that would be the kind of way of connecting people to the importance of it and giving them some understanding. And that'd be a lot of trees. So that's my genie wish. Well, you already got the jump start. I know we're both a part of the Rotarian, the Mile High Rotary Club out in Denver, and we planted 30 trees last weekend and or the weekend before. And I think there's a bigger goal of a, a trillion, right? Um, yeah, that's, that, that'll be more than our Rotary Club. Tax. Just a few. Yeah. So there is a goal out there of a trillion trees. And I think that, you know, a small club like ours doing what we did. And I was on a call earlier today and they're all very excited about um, elevating that uh, every year. So, and they named uh, you as being the chair of that committee. So <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's a surprise. It's uh, cutting a new or breaking news right now. Well, thank you very much. It's always a pleasure, Bruce. You, you're hailed amongst everyone. You really are. You're humble. You're an awesome guy. Um, well, uh, we look forward to talking to you more. Thank you. Well, thanks, guys. Yes, sir. Cheers. Take care.